Welcome Mr. Fatik to this podcast series on urban planning in India. You have a unique uh, experience of having worked in planning agencies involved in preparing city plans. Then as a consultant you have undertaken research and uh, worked on policies for agencies such as World Bank and uh, recently you have also taught as the dean of faculty of planning at SEPT University. In some of your writings and lectures <coughs> You have often said that land is one of the central issues in urban planning. One of the reasons that planning has not worked as well as it should have is because those who are involved have not recognized the land market in planning. That has been your main point. Can you please elaborate why understanding land market is important for urban planning? Economic and legal facets of land are not static but evolve as part of evolving civilization. Professor Satish Devdhar in his Economic Sutra, Ancient Indian Antecedents to Economic Thought has shown that land was clearly a private property and eminent domain did not exist. When king's horses trampled the fields, a compensation was payable called Paimalli. The external invaders from Mughals to British were essentially interested in extracting revenue from the land. It was convenient for them to accept and pamper intermediate agents to collect revenue from the individual farmers leading to various forms of zamindar. The colonial power introduced the legislation mainly related to collection of land revenue. It carried the British legacy where it is believed that the land belongs to the crown and feudalism prevailed. The legislation like Land Revenue Code of 1879 that laid down the system of keeping land records, surveys, settlements and revenue collection still prevails. Interestingly, such law uses the phrase holder or occupant but not owner. Land in such legislation is interpreted as land includes the benefits to arise out of land and things attached to the earth or permanently fastened to anything attached to the earth and also shares in or charges on the revenues or rent of villages or other defined portions of the territory. Thus land is defined as physical entity or product and also as a bundle of rights. Land as property and property in land. Some attempts were made by the colonial rulers to take over land for public purposes without paying compensation. However, this was resisted and finally a separate legislation was enacted in 1894 to enable compulsory acquisition of land for public purpose by invoking eminent domain. Thus, by the end of 19th century, land as private property was well accepted. Market transactions in property came to be governed under the Transfer of Property Act of 1872. Urban planning in early 20th century through Improvement Trust and Town Planning Acts in the then Bombay Presidency in 1915 and Madras Presidency in 1920 did accept land as private property and a market in such property. 
these acts provided for obtaining land for public purpose by enhancing the value of the remaining land land as legal and economic entity in the market was explicitly considered in these planning practices the statutory planning that emerged in independent india however largely remained oblivious to land as private property and market in such property how do you say that urban planning in independent india was uh, oblivious or uh, did not take cognizance of land market can you uh, illustrate and elaborate this point many leaders of the freedom struggle were ideologically inclined to socialism zamindari was seen as manifestation of feudalist capitalism they had resolved to abolish zamindari the constituent assembly in spite of the pressure from the socialists recognized to acquire hold and dispose of property as one of the fundamental rights in the constitution as a corollary the constitution also provided for acquisition of any property only by paying compensation for details of debates in this issue one may refer to the indian constitution and social revolution right to property since independence by v krishna anand despite such constitutional provisions the legislation for enabling planning and development of delhi through delhi development authority envisaged public ownership of entire planning area furthermore the compensation was proposed to be at the market value prevailing in 1955 though this provision was later deleted the first statutory master plan of delhi sanctioned in 1962 was based on the premise of public ownership of land planning then became a design exercise where land was allocated for various uses population density and far were prescribed <clears throat> city was conceived as a hierarchy of residential area neighborhood districts and the city and space for commensurate social facilities was assigned to each level of hierarchy later chandigarh gandhinagar and navi mumbai were also planned on the premise of public ownership of land delhi master plan became a model for statutory master plans of other cities though the premise of public ownership of land was not valid in these cities incidentally first school of planning was established in delhi where most of the state planning officials of early years were also trained this finally culminated in manual driven plans guided by udpfi guidelines of 1996 um are you suggesting that the delhi approach and the premise that public ownership of land uh, sort of left an enduring and a widespread impact which uh, we have not really gotten out of i'm sure you would agree uh, that the approach uh, to acquire uh, large tracts of land and prepare plans has not been the same since uh, 1980s because you well know that um, the resistance to land acquisition and legal hurdles have uh, impacted the approach the virtue of 
large scale public ownership did not remain confined to planning of delhi the national capital it was also politically accepted one significant contribution was that of the committee on urban land policy this committee was appointed by central council of local self government and town planning ministers conference in 1964 the committee comprised of four state ministers and four civil servants the report of the committee though entitled urban land policy it reads almost like a manifesto for urban planning in india it is important here to note the four objectives of the urban land policy identified by the committee i quote first to achieve optimum social use of urban land second to make land available in adequate quantity at right time and for reasonable prices to both public authorities and individuals three to encourage cooperative community effort and bona fide individual builders in the field of land development housing and construction and fourth to prevent concentration of land ownership in a few private lands and especially to safeguard the interest of the poor and the underprivileged <coughs> sections of urban society quote complete <coughs> though the objectives may appear to be unassailable they express the disbelief in market to achieve those and ask for substantial intervention <coughs> the committee in its report observed and i quote we too are of the view that there is no escape from large scale public acquisition if the question of guiding urban development or the provision of adequate housing and other facilities is to be tackled effectively we would even go to the extent of observing that large scale advanced acquisition of land would really be in the interest of the society as a whole it is by far the best and perhaps the only way to put an end to speculation in land and to capture future increase in land values these surpluses when realized by the public authorities should benefit the community in ways more than one above all this measure enables proper plan development and use of land besides enabling the public sector to extend its control over the vital land resources quote complete what was the formal decision on the report of the committee on urban land policy is not known but its impact seems to have percolated to town planners and town planning simultaneously the fundamental right to property and requirement of paying compensation for acquisition were seen as hurdles in following the directive principles of the constitution particularly the two principles which i quote the ownership and control of material resources of the community are so distributed as best to subserve the common good and the operation of the economic system does not result in the concentration of wealth and means of production to the common detriment quote complete eventually the constitution was amended in 1971 to replace the word compensation by amount and the amount or the method of fixing it 
were made non-justiciable. Following this, many acts included a formula for fixing the amount for example, Slum Improvement Acts, Housing Authority Acts, and Development Authority Acts. The amount ranged from 60 to 100 times the monthly rent. This initiative culminated in the enactment of Urban Land Ceiling and Regulation Act, 1976. The rationale of the Act was the two directive principles quoted earlier. By this Act, private excess surplus vacant land vested in the state at a nominal amount. The amount was to be calculated at the rate not exceeding rupees 10 per square meter and total amount not exceeding rupees 2 lakhs. A year later, word socialist was added to the preamble of the constitution. In 1978, the right to property was deleted as fundamental right and was converted to a mere legal right. However, such strong measures for intervention in the land market were not successful in establishing large-scale public ownership of land. Uh, because of this, uh, weren't there any policy changes? Planning Commission in early 80s appointed four task forces to review various aspects of urban development. The task force on planning of urban development reconsidered the urban land policy and proposed to replace the Objective 4 of the 1965 policy. New objective reads, and I quote, to widen the base of land ownership, specially to safeguard the interest of the poor and underprivileged sections of the urban society, quote complete. This was certainly in the direction of recognizing the market in urban land. The most significant experiment of large-scale public acquisition of land for urban development has been that of Delhi Development Authority. However, the results have been quite contrary to the expectation. The task force observed that, and I quote, It has not been possible for DDA to provide land at affordable prices to low-income beneficiaries resulting in large-scale Jogi colonies. In the absence of price signals, land has been suboptimally used, resulting in overprovision to powerful groups. And DDS policy to auction very few plots at a time and treating the maximum price quoted in such biddings as the real market price has in fact meant artificially increasing the land price through deliberate scarcity. Quote complete. This was an indictment of axiomatically accepted virtues of large-scale public ownership of land. The task force did recommend reforms in urban land use planning in the context of land market and also emphasized land readjustment as a way of ensuring planned development. However, as it happened, eight years before the economic reforms of 1991, it had little if any impact on planning practice. Um, Spartak, are you suggesting that a proper understanding of the role of uh, land market in urban planning actually took place only after the uh, economic uh, liberalization in, of uh, 1991? As the first step in liberalization, the quota, license and permit Raj was eliminated in case of industrial development. 
the underpinning of the earlier policy was that planners and not market knew what was optimal product mix however in case of urban development the belief that planner knows the optimal and therefore can and should decide allocation of land and floor space for various activities without any consideration of the market is still very strong contextually two events happened which affected planning firstly the urban land ceiling and regulation act was repealed in 1999 though such repeal happened in maharashtra and andhra pradesh in 2007 and 2008 secondly a new land acquisition law was adopted in 2013 called the right to fair compensation and transparency in land acquisition rehabilitation and resettlement act 2013 this made land acquisition procedurally cumbersome and also expensive with these any hope of large scale public ownership of land has faded away this had made it imperative for planners to consider the urban land and real estate market in plan formulation it would have also become incumbent upon the planners to assess the impact of planning regulations on the market however this has not yet happened before considering this further it would be useful to recapitulate some essential characteristics of urban land and these are <clears throat> first every parcel of land has unique location and because of this it is not possible to produce identical parcels of land second though quantity of land per se is finite it is possible to increase the supply of urban land by providing infrastructure infrastructure improves utility productivity and desirability of a parcel of land but for provision of infrastructure land itself is one of the essential inputs fourth urban land cannot be treated as pure public good this implies that market in urban land cannot be eliminated and because of these characteristics land price apart from being defined by the supply and demand also affect reflects the economic and environmental externalities planning that was considered here is essentially the statutory planning that is the making of development or master plans most relevant laws define development as layout and subdivision of land change of use of land and buildings reclamation of land building and engineering operations etc the law does not use the word development in its generic sense involving economic growth that is inclusive human development environmental sustainability etc we must now note the policy tools available to the statutory planners they are essentially two first the eminent domain the intrinsic power of the state to compulsorily acquire land required for public purpose by paying compensation second the police power to control nuisance this has been widened in its scope to ensure public health and safety and to control negative externalities a cause of market failure for delivering some public goods and services the state needs to possess property as product through eminent domain however for delivering private goods and services that is not necessary what is required is to define the property as a bundle of rights 
through what is usually called development control regulations. Planning as currently practiced, guided by the manuals such as UDPFI guidelines, most states have also opted for a common set of development control regulation. This is not conducive to considering city-specific land markets. The UDPFI guidelines identify the surveys to be carried out, such as socio-economic survey, land use uh, utilization survey, density surveys, infrastructure surveys, and transportation surveys. However, land real estate and housing market surveys are not mentioned. Land is mentioned only as a resource for raising finances. We may now turn to some unintended outcomes that arise in the absence of understanding land in the context of market. Concerns for preventing urban sprawl and promoting compact city lead to imposition of green belts around the cities. However, if the demand exceeds the supply constrained by the plan and prices, the prices within the city limits will increase. But that is a textbook prediction. In reality, unauthorized development also takes place in the peri-urban areas through corrupt practices such as the Guntevari in Maharashtra. Similarly, constraints on FSI imposed to avoid negative externalities of congestion may create scarcity of development rights in the market. Such scarcity will increase the price of development rights. This in turn will reduce the demand for floor space and increase the density which in the first place was to be restrained. Under extreme demand pressure, this would offer a lucrative hunting ground for rent seeking. At present, land and real estate market in many cities is distorted due to such plan provisions. No wonder that most plans remain unimplemented and non-compliant growth takes place. Maximum permissible density and maximum permissible FSI, the most common regulatory ratios when inverted, imply minimum land per person or dwelling unit and minimum plot area per square meter of floor space. Whether such minima are affordable to the majority should be a major consideration, but this consideration is absent from the process of plan formula. You have so far persuasively stated uh, the problem, uh, which is uh, planners and plans uh, thus far have in factored land market in the plans. Uh, Large-scale acquisition of land is no more feasible. If uh, that being the case, uh, what is your solution for the problem? How do you think uh, one should uh, or should land be considered in the process of formulation of a plan? Apart from various surveys and forecasts, Data sets need to be compiled that can help understand the land and real estate market. Some components of the data set could be listed as 1. Historical maps indicating the spread of built-up area based on Google images could be compiled along with the quantification of the spread. Land prices in converted areas and their adjacent undeveloped areas could also be compiled. Two. Geographically disaggregated data of floor space constructed for various uses for last 5 to 10 years may be compiled 
it would be necessary to separate greenfield and brownfield construction within the residential floor space area wise distribution of dwelling units could be compiled prices prevailing in various geographic zones could be noted 3 since both the earlier are likely to be based on the building permission data estimates of floor space unauthorizedly constructed like in slums may also be attempted along with relevant price data the data so compiled would provide supply side information we also need demand side data for residential floor space the demand will be determined by the household income distribution and access to housing finance unfortunately there are no secondary sources that can provide either the income or consumption data at city level some proxies and guesswork may have to be deployed in contrast housing loan data exists but may not be accessible due to confidentiality concerns such data set would then help evaluate the planning regulations in terms of their impacts Uh, for the benefit of the listeners, uh, can you summarize your views and points about land market and urban planning? In conclusion, I could say that I have traced the evolution of societal perception of land. On one hand, in independent India, we have moved from recognizing property as fundamental rights in 1950 to reducing it to a mere legal right in 1978. On the other hand, with the repeal of Urban Land Act. and enactment of land acquisition act we have reconfirmed our faith in private property consequently no plans can now be prepared by assuming large scale public ownership of land consideration of land market is therefore imperative in formulating city plans and also to evaluate the outcome of planning regulation in the end a data set that may help appreciate land market is proposed however this is not a comprehensive agenda for reforming city planning similarly in the recent past land value capture has become popular topic for application of value capture techniques it is obvious that understanding of land market is essential but that could be a topic for separate discussion thank you mr fatak uh, it was real pleasure talking to you I'm also looking forward to your forthcoming podcast.